0: well hello everyone um what a difference a week makes um when i recorded this episode episode 14 with my guests uh the amazing larry crane i was in a vacation house by the ocean enjoying a little little r&r um and uh during that vacation i i had a toothache i'd had a toothache for a while i went to my dentist and um you know she prescribed some penicillin and we set up a appointment to, you know, go to an oral surgeon and everything seemed peachy keen, Um, had a good vacation, recorded a couple of great episodes of the podcast, came home and pain started kicking in and uh, got to be downright excruciating. And um, last Tuesday, um, a week ago today, I decided I should probably go to the hospital and I did that. And, um, you know, they admitted me I had a very serious infection. It was pretty scary and, and, um, pretty dangerous. And, um, so I was, uh, there for about five days and they bombarded me with antibiotics to beat back the infection. I got home from the hospital on Saturday, I think. Anyway, you can hear it in my voice. I'm pretty fatigued. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was difficult. Let me put it that way um so i'm not at 100 percent yet um still still recovering um and i have to say i was really disappointed uh you know despite the fact that i was dealing with a very serious illness and i was in the hospital i was like oh i can't i won't have an episode to release this week because i'm in the damn hospital um and uh anyway i i i, I felt bad about it and um i'm glad to be on the mend and you know feeling better despite how my voice sounds I, I actually do feel a lot better um, and getting better every day um, but you know I just wanted to apologize to people who listen and um, enjoy the show that you missed out on an episode but um, you know your ho- your host was incapacitated uh, uh, circumstances beyond my control so um, you know I can say now that here it is episode 14 With my guest, Larry Crane, um, who is the founder and editor of Tape Op Magazine, and he runs a great recording studio out in Portland, Oregon, and we'll get right to this conversation. Um, You know, I think that's about it. Um, I'll keep you posted as I recover and do my absolute best to maintain my philosophy that the show must go on. And um, I'm glad to be back. I hope you're back with me. It's September, the first episode to air uh, after the summer ended and uh, i have a great lineup of 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 guests and episodes to get us through the cold frightening winter and uh yeah I'm gonna go to sleep now and i hope you enjoy this episode thank you for listening <laughs> <laughs> My guest today is Larry Crane. He's the editor and founder of Tape Op Magazine and the owner and main engineer of Jackpot Studios in Portland, Oregon. Larry, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you here. Yeah, Ted, thanks for having me over. I'm I'm ridiculously excited to talk to you because um, I've been a fan of Tape Op Magazine for a long time. And I just want to say at the very beginning, everyone who's listening, who listens to music who loves music who plays music um you should go and subscribe to tape op magazine it's fantastic it's really one of my favorite magazines that has anything to do with music and music production um a friend of mine a friend of mine named jeff Cadlick, who builds um custom builds guitars called champ tone guitars introduced me to your magazine i don't even remember how many years ago <laughs> but i've just been I I, I I anticipate the arrival of my next tape op magazine it's so oh, good. And I, Oh, well, thank you. You're welcome. It's, and and it's I, every, it's every two months
1: and everyone always goes, Oh monthly. And no, no, every two months. And, uh, and it's free in the U S it's actually a free print subscription. It's, it's also available as PDF anywhere in the world and you can read articles online, but you know, I always try to point out to people that it is a hard copy printed magazine. It has been for 20, uh, oh, geez, uh, 25 years.
0: Yes, it is. A physical copy shows up. And it is also worth emphasizing, as you said, that it's free, yeah. which to me is remarkable. I mean, it's it, it's a magazine that is absolutely cover to cover, full of great content, great reviews of, of uh, you know, musical recording equipment and other microphones and things like that. And it just blows me away that it's free. It's, 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 it is a valuable resource to well, me you know, and I think... If you examine how magazines work, which this is such a tangent, but my partner
1: John Bocchigloupi, who's been with the magazine since after the first couple of years I did on my own, and then he joined up, and he's he's really the publisher angle of the of the operation. And if you examine magazines, they really don't make a lot of money from uh, subscriptions. That's for mm-hmm. certain kinds of journals that are expensive and maybe quarterly or yearly even that's a that's a model that works um, even if you look at something like fretboard journal that that does have ads but I think the subscriptions are fairly pricey and that helps pay for that mm-hmm. but with tape up you know we really wanted to get it into people's hands we wanted to have a lot of eyeballs on it and to do the free subscription model it's actually kind of what a lot of magazines do anyway they just pretend to have subscriptions yeah and and managing subscriptions is actually so much work that you have to hire someone full time just to do that. So, you get rid of that subscription model, you just do the paid subscription. No one can complain if it doesn't show up. They have to buy a pack issue online <laughs> if they want to get one, right? right? If it doesn't, if the mailman takes it, you know. And so, that works a lot better for us. You know, it, it keeps us from having to um, manage that whole part of it. And we just have a list, we'd send it to the printer, they ship them out. And it's mm-hmm. really it streamlines everything and it just makes it really clear that we just want this in front of people to read as a resource, the advertising dollars. Absolutely. You know, online advertising, the advertising in the mag, which is the majority of our income, uh, that, that covers the expenses of
0: doing. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm, I, I want to talk to you all about tape up. I have a lot of very curious about a lot of aspects of it, but I want to back up a little bit first. Um, I've interviewed a lot of uh, guests at this point. Almost all of them are musicians um, or record producers, mix engineers. You know, people who come from the industry, generally speaking. And I, I find that I find that you know, interviewing a guitar player or a drummer or a singer songwriter, the 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 basic question you know how did you get here Mm -hmm. gets answered pretty easily you know they they grew up in a musical family or they didn't Uh, someone gave them they took a guitar lesson or they saw the beatles on the ed sullivan show and bam they started playing an instrument and and fell in love with it or whatever but the the sort of mix engineer producer guy uh and certainly magazine publisher um is is i imagine a more probably kind of a complex story. And I, I, I so I am very curious to know, like when you were a kid, what were you Man. thinking about as a kid? Um, You know, when well, you were looking ahead, were you a, I'm going to be a mix engineer guy well, or when I when I finished,
1: i had have to backtrack a little bit. When I finished high school and was going to college, I was pretty certain uh, I've been pretty captivated. I, I'm when I was let's see how would I have been you know, I would have been Early teenager when Star Wars came out, the first one, mm, you know. Okay. And uh, I really thought special effects, movie, film, special effects were pretty fascinating. And uh, I started making films on my own as a kid. And so, uh, like Super 8 and stuff, because there was no, no one had videotape yet. No, mm, no, yeah. Not at home, right? And uh, so um, I was... I was going to school to study film uh, in college, and uh, I'd already made films. I'd entered films in contests and won honorable mentions and all kinds of stuff, even as a precocious, precocious teenager. But I had also, at the same time, uh, been um, uh, I'd learned, I'd gotten my broadcasting license uh, as a teenager, mm-hmm. and I was a, I could have been a DJ. You know, I was, I was I was sitting in on radio shows with people that I knew. Uh, at public radio, community radio in uh, Nevada City, California, where I kind of grew up, part of, part of my growing up. And uh, I uh, also had taken electronics class in high school. We had a, a fairly huge mm-hmm. high school. Everyone got bussed in from all around the county. And uh, we had an electronics class where most of the things we built were like either flashing LEDs or things that made boopy, beep, beep, beep sounds. And I was more fascinated by the boopy, beep, beep sound things and started building a lot of weird boxes that made electronic noises. And so I started recording those to cassette and then I started tape trading. I started a record label when I was probably like 17 or 18. Wow. uh, A cassette label and trading Uh cassettes with people all over the country and the world. I was really inspired by a couple of guys that lived in Nevada City, Mikhail Graham and George Parsons, and also another guy named Tom Reddick. And I don't always mention this story, but they did radio shows and they put out cassette compilations and they did like art events and all kinds of different things. And it was a real artist community where I grew up. My mom was an artist. Uh, We knew lots of artists that did different kinds of art. Um, And I would babysit, you know, stained glass artists, kids, you know, I, I would go to art sales and help my mom sell ceramics and stuff that she did. And I did stuff and I sold it, you know, ceramics, uh, even as a, as a teen or pre-teen even. Um, so, you know, I was around that all my life. And we, my parents were, my mom had dated a guy that was in Roy Arberson's first band, the Link Westerners in uh, Texas. No kidding. And had hung out with Roy, you know, like when they when she was in high school. She had been the um, tour manager for a Spanish dance troupe, like before, you know, a couple of years before I was born. Uh, early 60s uh, traveled almost every continental every state in the continental states mm-hmm. as a road manager and seen racism up close and all kinds of crazy stuff and um, and my dad had been in the merchant or was was in the merchant marine most of his life and it's been all over the world but my my mom had done all that stuff my dad had <laughs> through him my family had met uh, Doug Clifford from Creedence Clearwater revival and Mm -hmm. drummer and he was a family friend so around us we always knew that my parents were not musical really at all but we knew that that was a viable thing Mm -hmm. and music just started by the time I was even starting college I was like oh I'm gonna do film stuff but it might be about music like this is pre-mtv I was like oh man Mm -hmm. music films I'd seen some you know uh like the wall Or, oh, I loved or, the, the wall. The, yeah, wall. yeah. To me, the wall, but that was before the wall came out. As oh, felt. wow. Okay. Um, the I loved the wall as an album at that point, and I, yeah. it was very visual in my head, and that kind of inspired me as well. That's a fantastic, one of the best productions. Yeah, I think the world will ever see of a rock album. But, um, you know, I really, um, I, I took the this idea. I loved prog music, uh, progressive music. I loved like Beatles. I love good songwriter stuff. You know. Um, really a variety of, of music. You know, I was in the, you know, Paul Simon and, and all kinds of different things. Just listen to everything, you know. But Pink Floyd was certainly one that really inspired me. Yeah. And when I got to college, I, I had this, I had a really minuscule scholarship through my dad's union. It was just enough to kind of get me through college with a little bit of help from my parents. So mm-hmm. I started doing film stuff, but. Where did you go to school to start? Well, your, Ch- Chico State University in okay. uh, California. It's a, in Northern Central Valley um it's it's kind of a shit college honestly i've, <laughs> I've bagged on it ever since and the, and the film teacher we had was a guy named aaron Bohr, who i've gone on record numerous times saying he was he was actually like a stifling piece of shit you know? Yeah, know was awful and um a lot of my a lot of my peers that that were studied under him too said the same thing it was like you had to you had to make films in spite of your teacher you know um and you know i made some films but i really got uh, more involved in doing musical things i was in a band called Ziploc with a friend of mine uh and uh and that kind of led to being in a band called vomit launch with a <laughs> with a couple of gals uh, uh lindsey and trish that were are still some of my best best friends in the world and uh and we went around and we played we did about eight years or so of and what gang. were you playing was what what playing? it Bass and sometimes guitar and and writing co-writing with with the uh, with the ladies and uh, and we ended up with a really great drummer Steve Steve Bragg, and uh, we made four albums basically, and so you know I would kind of like be the band's liaison in the studio and I I'd already been four tracking I'd been recording on cassettes way earlier than four track cassette even existed, you know I knew the ideas of punching in and. And that we needed to know how our songs started and ended, and tempos, mm-hmm. and what the what overdubs we should do. So I was always the guy doing that. And so that that band really started at my end of my college career. And I just you know i remember riding the bike away the day I was done from school, and I was like, good, I can play music full time, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so we we toured you know a little bit. We toured the West Coast quite a bit. We even made it out, played CBGB's, headlined there one time in '92. Uh, Nirvana opened for us. We played with, like, the Dead Kennedys, the Replacements. Uh, wow. You no know, um, Cake opened for us years ago. I mean, we, we were really, you know, we were like this people, some people that were in, more in the know about the world blamed us for inventing indie rock. But, um, you know, we were kind of like a melodic, <laughs> jangly, but slightly punky. If that makes any sense, we we weren't, Trying to mimic anyone necessarily mm. that was out there, but we were trying to carve a way
0: to to do something unique, you know. Yeah. Um, can people Milana, still hear your Can people still hear that music?
1: Yeah, it's on all the streaming services. So, um, and this is this is yeah. still with Vomit Launch. Yeah, and that was Vomit okay. Launch. We did that from like eighty five to ninety two. Uh, eighty five was exactly the year that I graduated yeah. college too. So, um, and when the band broke up, um, Lindsey, the guitar player, it, is one of my best friends and she was like, "I'm well I'm done, I'm moving to Portland because we'd come up here on tour quite a bit. So that's how um, I I came up to visit and I was like, yeah, you're right, this is cool. Because Chico's Mm -hmm. a very small college town, you know. Mm -hmm. And so we both, and she moved up here, then I moved up here and and I started just work. I was like, I'm so burnt out on being in a band. And I, but I just, I rented a room in a house, I started set up my four-track on, co- on a card table, and I started recording demos and things. And uh, my first wife was a drummer. Actually, every I've been married three times. Every single one of them played drums. This is bizarre. But um, it's handy, though, too. Um, yeah. So I, I started playing music with her. That turned into a band. I, I, we moved into a house. We set up a rehearsal room, and we put a window in the wall, and that turned into a studio. And then it got too busy. I mean, I was recording like uh, Elliot Smith and Cap Power and Stephen Malkmus from Pavement and all these people doing demos and recording. That's unbelievable. In, in my basement. Yeah. You know, I just, I didn't, I never set out to do any of this. This would be the really honest thing. Um, I thought re- music recording was, was something like you had to be really technical but I realized I kind of was already technical. Yeah, <laughs> I just needed to know, like, oh, okay, mic pre into the recording medium. Like, you know, the mic pre had always been built into like a four-track cassette or the the front of an old uh, classic tape deck, cassette tape deck in a home stereo. Yeah. They yeah. Had a, a quarter-inch input and a knob. So I, you know, I got I I kind of got up to speed. I would quiz, you know. Uh, my friends, the people that John Bocigalupi, who does tape up with me, had recorded the last two and produced the last two Vomit Launch records. Greg Freeman from Pall Mall and The Call had re- recorded and produced the first two. So both of them would, you know, get calls from me. And then I was like, man, And and a parallel track, I had been writing reviews and some interviews for small magazines, newspaper, local papers, weeklies. Mm. Um, and all that stuff dried up right at the same time, like like at the end of uh, uh, 95. And I, was, I had no job, no writing gigs. None of them were really paying or anything. They were just for fun and all about music, you know. So all of a sudden I was like, I could do a zine. I had done a zine like in 80, oh my God, 85, 86. I'd done a handmade stapled zine. So I started a zine about music recording, because I was like, I need to learn more, so I'm going to call Greg and interview him, that's issue one, you know, yeah. so it really, everything, you know, tape op in the studio are very interrelated in that respect, and it's about learning, me learning, getting better at my craft, and learning, and, 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 and talking to people about the philosophies of recording, or, or, or the techniques, or whatever, everything, you know. I have some
0: questions, uh, yeah, so there's a whole back, <laughs> is that on, a
1: backstory or what? <laughs> that is
0: unbelievable backstory. Uh, you know, and it's, I mean, open, having Nirvana open for you. I mean that, that kind of stuff, like I played in a band called ominous Sea pods. We toured for over a decade and we did, we had similar experiences. Like we yeah. had the band train open for us at one point, you know, right. it happens like a band gets a yeah. record deal, but no one's heard them yet. Absolutely. And they go out yeah. and they sort of, you know, do the grind for a little while. Um, but were you the kind of guy who uh, was looking at the backs of records and looking to see who mixed it and and who because uh, I remember doing that as a kid, I was just so fascinated by the, that the the fact that the music that I was listening to was such a sort of seamless and beautifully, mm-hmm. you know, kind of blended together collection of individual instruments. And I was just kind of fascinated by that. I didn't really know what yeah. was happening, and that would come later. But did you have that kind of curiosity oh. as a kid? Yeah, because of the art
1: background, you know. Mm, I mean, yeah. Um, you know, you you know, you you know, don't look at a piece of art, especially things that are, um, like say, a, a really large sculpture that's cast in bronze. You know that the artist didn't do, just make the whole thing on their own, you know. And you're, you're always curious, like, what's the process? You mm-hmm. know, and I had an art, I took, I studied for an art minor, in fact, while I was in college. And that's probably informed me, far more than my communications degree mm, but um you know because of that and and you know knowing that my mom would hire people to make the art but the art had her name on it to help her make you know more quantity of things mm-hmm. that were like reproducing a certain device, a certain thing you know i knew that it was it was always more you know i think i've always been very anti-diy the concept of diy i think is very very flawed mm. and i think that how so because it's bullshit it's like <laughs> it's n- not very 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 few great things are done by a single person all the way through mm. okay you know? yeah and and even if even say if you're the you know the top painter in the country right now whoever that would be right you've still got if you're busy you've got a manager an agent you've got you've got the people that you studied under that, that deserve a shout out. All these things. So, so to me, like we don't do this stuff in a vacuum. None Very of true. us are really. I, I'm, I'm really kind of anti the concept of genius, you know. And I have to answer that question a lot in regards to Elliot Smith, and we'll probably talk about that later. But um, I think that a lot of things. We are all just the sum of all these experiences we have, and and that's a pretty obvious statement. But people that are Harold is as geniuses and quotes or whatever are generally people that have worked really hard and there's a backstory so Mm -hmm. i would look at the records and i wouldn't think that you know if i see you know paul simon's face on the cover i'd think well yeah he he wrote the songs he's singing but you know he probably didn't play the drums you know so you look on the back who played drums oh steve gad you know or or who who? What's a producer? Who's Phil Ramone? You know, mm, yeah. So you you look at that and, and you you try to f- pick out what that means. You ask your friends that are into music, what's a producer do? And they're like, I don't know, but this one guy's name is on a lot of records, or you know, yeah. George Martin used to tell the Beatles, you know, here, put an arrangement on there, you know. Um, so you you know, you start picking that, putting that together. But I, I definitely. Would read the credits and, and growing up in the LP era, you know, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying, you're unfolding.
0: Yeah, 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 unfolding the record, yeah. <laughs> gate,
1: gatefold sleeve in front of you. Yeah, um, you know, growing up in the in the LP era, the the credits were easier to find. Uh, yes. they were usually printed on the on the inner sleeve or in the in gatefold or somewhere on the back, and you'd be like, "Who's Mike Chapman? Who's Who's Brian Eno? Who's this? You know, who did mm-hmm. this? Who helped the band make this record?" And um, I think that's you know that just goes along with being a fan. I mean everything I'm doing is all because I'm a fan of music. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it's not like I woke up when I was 16 and I said I want to re- own a recording studio or I want to be a bass player in a post punk indie band or I want to um do a, a magazine. I never wanted to be a goddamn editor of a magazine. I thought when <laughs> when I got out of college I was done with deadlines and I was done with <laughs> You know, having yeah. to cram or, or study for an uh, an interview the next morning. Oh, my God. You know, it never yeah. ends 25 years later. And um, so, you know, these things, you just you find these paths, you see them in front of you and you, you do these things. And and I think I completely veered off of your question, whatever it might have been.
0: <laughs> oh, it was it, I, I actually I think you nailed it beautifully. <laughs> okay. It was it was the question about like scouring the backs of records and stuff. Oh, and yeah. uh, I mean, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, and. I think something's lost in the, in the digital streaming world now, you know, there was something so wonderful and tangible, obviously about holding a record in your hand or even the, even a CD where you could look at the back and you could see the artwork and you could, you know, those, uh, those, those those aspects certainly.
1: But I think even more importantly, the aspect of discovery of of going to a record store and buying one record at a time every few weeks, studying the shit out of that record and then going, you know, and and looking around i had a book called the encyclopedia of rock i think lillian roxon does that sound right um as the author and i would you know look i'd be like okay i got you know some someone gave me fragile by yes or something you know Mm -hmm. or 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 the yes album and you listen to it and you go that's really good is there more music like this so you'd open up the encyclopedia of rock here's the entry for yes first two records aren't so great then they you know and then they got kind of Okay, great, great. I'm going to check out. Uh, I, hey, do you got Relayer? I'd ask my friend. You know, I had a friend named Tony that uh, had lived in, I think, Okinawa on a military base and had tons of records. Like he had just been buying in all these, I think they were Taiwan or somewhere, Didn't have had never signed the copyright agreement, so he could mm-hmm. buy these records for like 20 cents each or something that were bootlegs of proper albums. You know? Yeah, <laughs> <And> yeah. <laughs> I'd just go over and get a stack. I'd record them to cassette, take them back to him. You know, so I was just listening to tons of music and and trying to learn about it, and, and I was buying books about it and reading. You know, this is all pre-internet, of course. But I think that sense of discovery was really important and that yeah. you 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 absorb as much as you can. I would buy things like Boz Skag Silk Degrees, you know, and I'd listen to it over and over, and I'd finally kind of feel like this isn't 100%, this isn't bad. But it's not one hundred percent what I think I want to listen to, and then I would find yeah. like a Wire album or a or Gang of Four, and I'd be like, "Oh, this is kind of a little more edgy," or even King Crimson, you know, things like that that were more, you know. You start listening to Sticks, and then you listen to Yes, and then you listen to King Crimson. You're like, it can get really complicated.
0: Yeah, you? yeah, you're developing yeah. taste. Yeah, I mean, you're yeah, becoming yeah. a judicious listener. Mm-hmm. You know, and like I don't know what. That-
1: doing that one by one is so important and, and really taking time to absorb it instead of just skimming through a
0: Spotify. You know, I agree. And I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to hear your, your opinion on this. I mean, I think that I have a lot of problems with the, with the rate at which information comes at us these mm-hmm. days. Yeah. I think the frequency yeah. at which music and all of the forms of information come at us so fast that very few people these days have the skill to transform information into knowledge yeah the yeah, information comes and goes comes and goes comes and goes it's very fleeting and, and um, learning
1: learning skills if you if you only have like to put it back to the recording perspective if you only have a very limited amount of equipment in front of you and that's all you're gonna have for like four years because you're broke then you will max it out and if you keep buying you know the newest thing you hear about oh, oh this is supposed to be a really good compressor and I'll buy this one and you keep changing stuff up. You're probably not going to learn everything that piece of equipment can do and you're not going to maximize it and you're not going to get to a level where you know i really need something that does this other thing i'm hearing the deficiencies of the equipment that i own
0: yes and
1: and, and that kind of learning is really valuable because then when you get confronted with that same equipment or something similar to it later you go oh yeah i know what's holding us back we got to swap yeah. out the mic preamp you know, right
0: exactly you know, yeah those, those, i mean I, I important I agree. Um, and I just want to share a personal experience with me. And then I, 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 I want to ask you about your experience in this process. I, I started making, I started recording and, and mixing records and even producing records for other bands along about 30 years ago, 25 years ago now. And it, for me, it really came from, I had an insatiable curiosity about gear and not everybody in my band was that way that, you know, there are certain types of people who are just like, I'm just going to go in there. I'm going to play the engineer's going to handle everything. They'll know what to do. They don't aren't that concerned what's on the other side of the glass, but I was, and I was always in the control room and I was looking at needles moving and things glowing. And I I was very fascinated by that. And I was also, I've shared this before, but I was generally kind of unhappy with the sound of the records we were making. And I started to think to myself, I might be able to do this better, you know? And I started, I started a friend of mine had four app machines and a 32 by eight Mackie console. Oh yeah. And like you said, that. maxing out equipment, like yeah. you learn, you know, people unfamiliar won't know, but the, the data machines were notorious for not syncing up and, you know, we named them, uh, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. <laughs> and we'd be like, Oh, George is acting up again. Yeah, totally. And that process was really great for me. I was fascinated by it, sometimes frustrated by it, but it was so cool. I'm, I'm curious to know, like, after you mm-hmm. per- pass the sort of cassette tape world, and you started moving into slightly more complex recording systems, um, what was the learning curve like for you? The, the, the interesting thing for me, I
1: think, is that the technology always just looked like tools to me. I'd never fetishized it, never have. Mm. Uh, you might look at my studio gear list and think I did. I still don't really fucking care about mm. gear. Mm-hmm. really. I've always played like cheap bass guitars, through whatever amps I could get my hands on. I've always, um, you know, I've got really wonderful things. You can see a, a Rupert Neve console right behind I me. I see and it. Some ATC monitors and, you know, nice things. Um, that's fine. But when I was, you know, 20-something and I was going in the studio and making records, I knew what the gear was. I knew we had an 8-track Otari. I knew we had a certain kind of console. Maybe I don't know because I don't know what that console was. The Gumby console. <laughs> My friend Greg had a gum, the Gumby console because they'd done the audio for Gumby on it. Oh, no kidding. I don't even know what that was. I'll have to ask him. Um, and, uh, you know, I knew what those tools could do. I understand, understood that if we had eight tracks, we might have to double up things on the overdubs, play them at the same time. Or I could do the project management of the studio. Absolutely understood that. Setting a mic pre level, no idea. And I didn't care. It wasn't, this is certainly pre the era of of very many outboard mic preamps Mm -hmm. or or things like that. We, our first record we did, we had one effects unit, an SPX, a Yamaha SPX-90, we had one. So we, I'd be like, oh, we should probably print that track with that effect on it so we can use it for something else in the mix. And and Greg would say the same thing. He would guide us that way. And I would learn like, okay, so if I want that flanger, I go to do it now. You know, um, yeah. I was good at guiding. I was good at sort of junior producing, you know, probably to the detriment, you know, or to the annoyance of any engineers around me. But right. <laughs> um, I did not give a rat's ass about what the equipment was technically, or brand names, or I gave a, I, I wanted to know about the limitations and I want to know what we had to deal with or what we had to plan on. But, um, you know, I don't remember what monitors we were using. That I, I think the fetishizing of recording equipment is, is is gross. It's just really, there's a part of it to me that is just, some, it's so askew from the goal. Goal is to make a great record or a great recording. Or 100%. Facilitated, whatever. And there's no no one can deny that, right? We don't want to impede the recording because of the equipment. So, okay, certainly we got to get a, a console that doesn't break or a tape deck that keeps running or yeah. you know, Pro Tools that's stable, ha, 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 you know. <laughs> um, you know, so you, you try to mitigate the interference of the equipment. But, you know, and you then you go, oh, well, this God, the, I can never get a great vocal sound, so maybe I've got to find some other kinds of mics, you know. And uh, so, you know, that exploration, certainly. But, you know, the thing that I started Tape up with the intent of telling people, don't wait you know, for, for I got to have a, a U47 or I, I have to have more channels. or That's the bullshit part of the technology. Yes. That doesn't matter. You People have already proven that amazing records could have been made on one track. You know, mm-hmm. you know, or yeah. no tracks cut straight to a cylinder. You know, it's been done. And, and people have made better records than you're going to make with 100 tracks already. That's been done. It's been proven. Mm-hmm. So really, what you need to do is is be much more holistic, and focus on what you need to get done, and then figure out how you can do that with your technology available, with your budget, with your time, with the abilities of your players, and and all those things. That's the important part. Yeah. and I really, you know, I I always get accused of, of being a hypocrite if I if I go on the internet and you know social media and say things like this you know, everyone turns around and goes, I looked at your gear list, blah, 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 blah. Like, <laughs> Yeah. That's, that's, you know, 40 some odd years of yeah. collecting equipment, you know, yeah. like, so, so fuck you. And, <laughs> you know, that's it. <laughs> yeah. That's in this room because I need to get a job done for other people that are hiring me and paying me a fairly nice sum of money to, to enter, you know, have me help them work, you know? yeah, yeah. So yeah, you, if you're, when you're charging $850 a day, you don't, you don't have them come in and go, oh, the tape deck isn't quite working. I don't know what to do. You know, right. looking at the tape decks, right? There's two of them because guess what? Redundancy works, you know? And I've got a two Burl motherships and I have I have extra monitors and I, I can make a console in a computer if the console goes down, I can build a virtual one. I've got a whole monitor ST system in a box, ready to go If that sec- if the monitor controller crashes. I have I use the Furman uh, HRM HDS 16 system. Mm-hmm. I have a whole extra set of of the little headphone mixers and the and the distributor in a box upstairs. Everything there's redundancy here. We can keep moving. That's where a lot of money's went into things that there's an extra set of NS10s upstairs in a box I've never even seen. You know, <laughs> bought yeah. them from a friend I trusted. You know. Um, You know everything's here to keep the project moving it's not Mm -hmm. about being excited about recording equipment because recording equipment it sits in a room if it's not even turned on it's just dead sitting there it's nothing it means nothing yeah if you can't wrap your head around that you're going to go down all the wrong paths and and waste your time waste
0: your life you know I've done it myself. I mean, I confess. <laughs> I'm, I'm as you're talking, like my ears are burning. <laughs> I'm like,
1: <laughs> you know, um,
0: I, I will say this. Yeah, I, yeah. I had, I had, uh, I mentioned in pre-roll. I had David Kalmuski on. He's a producer, recording mm-hmm. engineer from Nashville, and he said something that seems very apropos here. He said, "It's the work that gets you the gear, oh, not yeah. the gear that gets you the work." And and that's absolutely that's, true. But there there were definitely times where yeah, I yeah. chased where I chased <laughs> equipment. Um, and I do love gear, I just love it. I love recording, I love this process of getting sounds. You know, that's one of my favorite things in the world, but yeah, I had to go through a period of thinking, Oh, you know, I need to get a 1073 or I need to do this or that. And uh, but I'm, I don't do that anymore because over the years, I learned that I learned my capabilities. That's probably one of the most important things I learned. I learned what I could do, and I realized that I could do those things without. Uh, all of the bells and whistles that I, I used to think were so important. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, ba- I basically work entirely in the box now I have a studio in my house I do session drum session work. Right. Uh, and I I'm, I'm working, which I actually wanted to say. Because I read Tape Op and I read uh, a, a review and, and, and some stuff about the universal audio stuff when I, when I was looking for a new interface, I decided yeah. to get the Apollo X8P and couldn't be happier with it. It works great for what I do. And, right. you know, so I have a very streamlined setup now. Um, I mean, the digital revolution initially was, was
1: you know, certainly god awful. You know, I mean, the, yeah. the, the first multi-tracks were open real formats, you know, Uh mm-hmm the dash and and, uh, and different systems, Mitsubishi and Sony, um, you know, and those were, those were created, you know, in order to do more than 24 tracks on one machine and they didn't sound good at all. And, you know, then ADATs and D88s and, and DA38s and all those things came along and we're skipping, we'll skip over a bunch of stuff, but, yeah. you know, <laughs> initial digital was not great. And even like when I didn't have a Pro Tools system until the 001, Digi 001 came out, and even i that, had I that just, i used it as a dat machine and you know, i was uh, mixing into it off of all the analog gear and, and that way yeah. i could edit my mixes you know or or make cds faster or whatever um you know all, all that stuff it's it's finally matured uh, to a point where you, when when i interview people like andrew Shep's or or um, um oh geez sorry <laughs> um insert name. insert chad, very chad talented blake. i was gonna say chad blake uh a number of people, you know, and, and and other people I've had conversations with, famous mixers, where they we they've called me, we talk, and they're like, "Should I just get rid of everything?" And I'm like, yeah. oh, "I don't, I don't know. That's up to you." And even myself, I'm like, I mix. Sometimes I mix in the box. Sometimes I mix to the console. Right now, I've got a massive patch set up. Left wow. On Monday, where I mixed a a song, you know, out of the box. and It took all day. And and today I'm mixing things in the box because I can do. I need to get like a ton of stuff done really fast. Yeah. And and it's not a sacrifice. It's just a different way of working. Yeah. You you set up parameters for yourself that make that work.
0: You know. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, I agree. I just real quick. uh, I just want to say uh, real quickly for people listening who don't know, when you're mixing in the box, you're mixing using a computer. You're using software, computer software, essentially to emulate what mixing out of the box is which is on a good old-fashioned mixing console using you know hardware that you plug into a wall etc and mixing in the box is is a very common way to do it these days like a a virtual way of doing it yeah is is a a simple
1: way to explain to a lot of people that and you know honestly it's like any tool for making a record for for getting the final end product is valid you know and one of the things yeah. that certainly was really disheartening early on was people saying you know well digital's bullshit or Pro Tools is bullshit or Autotune is bullshit you know and it's like you know you're oh my god you know excuse me I'm falling asleep like you know that that's just not the way to look at any kind of art you know like yeah. if you're if you're a painter and you go, oh, people doing video art installations in the '80s were were idiots and that's garbage. It's like, well, that kind of paved the way for a lot of other stuff that's happening now. Mm-hmm. And you know, if people are making records, you know, Jack White, like interviewing Jack White about how he makes records, you know, he was when I talked to him, it's like, you know, eight track, one inch, and blah blah blah. You know, whatever, it's all tape tape decks because he wants that procedure that gets him to his results faster. Yeah fine totally valid the next person is like you know 400 tracks in pro tools you know like okay yeah. fine the, that record sounds good too it just doesn't matter and, and to get didactic about kind of relating back to the gear acquisition syndrome mm. you know to get didactic about the recording process and say the good record can't be made if blah 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 you know dot 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 is bullshit you yeah. know I, I had yeah i time, agree oh my god one time uh, let me digress I was I was at a bar, uh, and 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 um, I wasn't drinking at the time. And I was with with a lady, and I was at a bar, and some guy looks at me across the bar, and he goes, "Are you that recording guy?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I have a studio." And he goes, "Oh yeah, yeah. He, what kind of console do you have?" And I said, "Well, I've got this. I had an Allen and Heath Saber at the time. And that's a really garbage console." If- anyone wants to know um, <laughs> but it worked it got me you know i mean i yep. made records on it everything worked i got this helen e. saber you know and i i i use a lot of outboard gear i'm not really and you know, he just yeah you can't make a great record on a console like that and the the, the friend who i was with she was just like you don't even know who this guy is he's already made great records <laughs> you know and the yeah. guy goes oh I've got a CADIC thing and I've got an API and, a, and, and but they're all in storage right now because I don't have a place to put them in I'm like well you can't make a record on a console in storage
0: <laughs> exactly production. that's so funny that's <laughs> that's
1: awesome that's perfect <laughs> and that's the story I mean it's like yeah. it, it, none of this matters unless you're making art if you're not mm-hmm. making art I, you know it's just, it, none of it matters I mean yeah and if you don't, if you want to make art, and you want to use equipment. You have to learn how to use it. It's just like learning how to use a potter's wheel or a kiln, or mm-hmm. you know, a paintbrush or an airbrush or anything.
0: Yeah, I agree. I just have one more one more question about about the studio aspect of <laughs> yeah, your yeah. life, and then and then I really <laughs> want to talk about tape off. Uh, sure. um, when did you when did you start Jackpot? Uh, 19... Which is the name of your studio? Yeah, yeah, Jackpot
1: Recording Studio. Uh, we started in like basically January, 1997. Um, and what had happened is the home studio I mentioned earlier had, had become a little too much. It wasn't too big, but it was just the noise. We were, I was doing like metal bands and punk bands mm-hmm. and all kinds of different things. Yeah. And you know, people were coming and staying at my house and making records and it was pretty invasive. Um,
0: yeah.
1: I had, I had a wife, I had a roommate, you know, and it was just like, it got kind of silly. So yeah. Um, you know, I started looking around for an affordable space to move into, um, and I think I mentioned it to a few friends. I'm always the kind of person, when I get a project or, or an idea to do something, I, I kind of verbalize it with a few people. And I think I told a friend, and, and she said, well, Elliot Smith's going to, he said he's going to build a studio. And so we started talking. We went and had a drink and talked about it, and I was like, I'm going to build this. It's going to be mine. But if you want to help me find it, build it, and work out of there, we can prorate your your time, mm. you know. And he's like, mm-hmm. "Cause I'm going to be on tour, and you know, he was already he was signed to a major label at that point, and things were going to get moving. So I thought this is perfect. I don't have to keep the place totally busy. I'll have some of his equipment to use, mm-hmm. and uh, so we drove around for weeks it felt like looking at places for rent Uh and uh finally I found a place I was riding the bus to work one day and I looked down and I saw this place on a corner and I was like oh yeah that's I've always noticed that little building Uh ironically right next to another pre-existing recording studio and um which I would not recommend (laughs) Uh, and uh so I ended up renting a place for five hundred bucks. Uh, me and Elliot put our names on the lease, and uh, though it was still my business, you know, I ran it, and uh, mm-hmm. I never did even charge him for recording time. And <laughs> ended up, he was just so busy; it wasn't even a point. You know, you yeah. just grab empty days, and, and uh, we we built a wall to separate the main room and and put the gear in there. Bought a Mackie thirty-two by eight, like you yeah. mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, and bought a 16-track uh, MCI tape deck, two-inch tape deck, and just started. I was booked up for months before I even opened the door because um, in, probably in contrast to many people that think they want to own and run a studio, I was already in demand. You know, I'd, yeah. And I, I knew tons of people that wanted to work with me. I'd been working so busily, so busy in my basement. And the Portland music scene really didn't have a lot of studios fitting that niche right then there were there were some people with adap based studios that were uh, i don't know them but evidently not very great engineers from the end result in Mm -hmm. my opinion Mm -hmm. and uh and there was a mike lastra had a studio has has had a studio in his house here called (laughs) smegma and uh and he'd done he'd done a lot of like pretty well-known ind- independent kind of bands and stuff and uh, in you know and there's some other places there were there were a few studios there's only a couple left from that era um, mm-hmm. like falcon and dead anthemas and a few others but um i really i knew i was part of the scene you know i was at the yeah. shows that the bands that were coming to I'd, I'd go to a show i'd be playing a show and the, and someone would come up and go don't you have that little studio and you know it was yeah i, I was my own best advertising you know and yeah and 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 the bands were you know wanting to get something done for cheap. It was two hundred fifty dollars a day with me, as long as you want to work. You know, I was ridiculous. You know, I was living yeah. on rice and beans and putting everything I had into the studio. And uh, and I worked really, 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 really hard for a long time. I would mm-hmm. I would do like a twelve-hour shift and then go on the computer and start working on tape on. Yeah, you know, for for years, I would work 30, 40 days in a row, no days off. Um, I mean, anyone that thinks they want to do this should should start interviewing people that are, you know and talk about their early careers because you've got to find a point in your life where you can say like, okay, I'm not going to have kids, I'm not going to have stability, I'm not going to have a dental health plan, I'm not going to have you know a car that's less than twenty years old. You know, right? I mean. I lived in a house that was 200 bucks a month for my, my rent, part of the rent. I had a $500 space to rent for the studio initially. And, uh, and everything went into that, you know, yeah. you know, I went through several divorces. I, I worked my ass off I, and, and I wasn't available, you know? And it's, so it's like, do you want, do you want to do this? You know, <laughs> you know, you gotta be really, really, really driven and you've got to be, part of a community in some respect it doesn't have to necessarily be the community that you live in you could be doing a certain genre of music that really gets you a lot of work um you know because you've made records people enjoy or you know it could be all these other aspects or you could be you know like i think you were mentioning like you track drums for people remotely and things yeah. like that mm-hmm. a lot of i have a lot of friends that do stuff like that you know various instruments you know, so, but you're, 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 you're only going to get work because of what you've done before, as you, as you mentioned earlier, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. And I was just going to say, you know, when you mentioned, you know, if you, if you think you want to get into this, into this business, you should interview people. Well, I've had the opportunity to do that. And I I also know a lot of people in the industry. I've been involved in music for, for 30 years professionally. And right. I hear it again and again and again. Exactly what you just said. You know, work, 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 work. Long days, long nights. You know, yeah. and uh, persistence and you know tenacity and all of those things. I hear it. I mean, over and it was my experience yeah. too.
1: The last, you know, Indran. I think in the last issue was just one I wrote about. About that era, just like you know, once once and and you know, Malcolm Gladwell came up with the ten thousand hours. But whatever whatever that is, that point is when you you hit that crest and you get over it and you go, Oh my God, it's so much easier now. Yeah, <laughs> It's all very yes. fluid that the, I'm not thinking as hard. I'm not taxing my brain. And now I can open up that extra energy to do an even better job, you know, at, at my craft. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the thing. You're never going to hit it. If, if you're a hobbyist or, or something, and you do this just occasionally you make a couple of records a year with people you you're never going to get to a point where it's just really fluid and easy and and you're able to open up your mind to be a really strong producer. Yeah. Because because you're going to be troubleshooting all these other things all the time. And, yeah. And getting those out of the way or making the solutions very just second nature without even batting an eye eyelash, you know. Boom. Yeah. Fix that problem. Yeah, yeah, I know. I've seen that before, you know. Yeah. You're not going to get there without all that experience
0: yeah and in the beginning i mean for me in the beginning i spent probably ten thousand hours untangling micro cables and yeah. uh you know like just yeah. figuring out oh, yeah. troubleshooting troubleshooting adat machines trouble you know yeah. power problems all of those things that come up and you gotta just get yeah. through it all i mean you know? the
1: secret to something like adats was to have like two extras you know that's the only way to do it if you wanted to have three running you gotta have five or four at yeah least. and a technician nearby um but you know, I mean, all that stuff, um, you know, you, you sacrifice it because you, you see, and for me, I saw an opportunity to not be working jobs I didn't like. I Up mm-hmm. until that point, I the only job I'd had in, that was really sustaining me in music was working at a record distributor where I had to call record stores and go, do you want any of the stuff in our catalog? And they'd say, what catalog? And okay, I'll mail it again. You know, and then call them <laughs> oh, up. God. Do you want anything in our catalog? Eh, nah, no, not really. I've got enough distributors. Uh, you know, so, I, and I'd worked in food service all through the vomit launch era and, and after I'd been in working in restaurants and bars and uh, catering and, you know, I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, I, when when someone you know, when you do that kind of work and then you you realize oh my god i could just be in a studio with like four people making a record instead like that yeah. and, and work 10 or 12 hours that sounds fine you yeah because i'd already yeah. worked 10 hour shifts all my life you know
0: yeah i mean and i have to say i have I worked many jobs as a young when i was young when i was in high school and i was in early college and then i was lucky enough to be able to drop out of college and be in a band full-time and kind of yeah. never looked back but you know an eight-hour day working at a grocery store uh, felt every bit the eight hours, but a 16 yeah. hour day working in my home studio, producing records for bands d- didn't feel that way. You know, it didn't yeah. feel like work to me. It doesn't feel like work to me. I think, you know? I think
1: if you have a, if you can learn, and this has been a growing thing for me for years, is learning also how to have a really good attitude about it. Yeah. You know, number one, don't take jobs. If you're, if you question whether you're, you're going to be into it, you know, mm-hmm. like, like just don't do it or, or do it and say here's the parameters we're going to do this fast you know but mm-hmm. if it's something where you think mentally this is going to be taxing taxing in a in a negative way or i'm not going to be enthusiastic about this project project because of the music or the people just step step away don't do it you know yeah. and and i'm in I'm a certainly at a luxurious position but i finally just hit it like this year where I, mm-hmm. i've been turning work down this mm-hmm. year I mean I've been doing yeah. studio 25 years so yeah you know people have to understand it wasn't like you know oh I worked with Elliot Smith early on did a had a song nominated for an Oscar and I stopped I started picking and choosing every single job not at all yeah you know and so I used to take work all the time and I would just be sitting there like oh god this band sucks you know and <laughs> and and, and I'd, I'd have a real negative attitude you know and yeah. I've learned that that even with the things that I don't think are fantastically amazing that I've got to go in with an attitude where I go, I'm still going to try to make this the best thing this can be. I'm going to really work with this person to make sure they're comfortable. I'm going to do all these other things and I'm going to be, I'm going to be more creative towards this project than they're going to expect because that'll engage me and give me things to do besides just sitting here in engineering and going, you're flat, you're sharp, you know, yeah, that, right. That it's far more interesting, you know, to go, you know, there's six bridges in that song. Maybe that's a chorus, you know, and maybe you only do it four, you know, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. to be able to help them structure, to be able to help them come up with tempo and, and, you know, move instruments into different ranges and all the arrangement stuff that always makes the recording sound better. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've gotten so far into that. I love that part. You know, Me too. I'm not a trained musician. I've never taken any music. I took four weeks of piano once, um, but I can. I've learned the language of like, oh, just rest there. You know, let's get real staccato on that thing, and then this, just just let those parts just whole note, boom, hang, and then and then in that section, you know, go up an octave on the bass because there's a big floor tom thing and it takes up all that range, and then okay, you know, and I. Yeah. I'll, I'll run people through all this stuff and I've learned enough language to talk to musicians even though I am one you know to talk to them in slightly musical terms that everyone understands yeah you know? yeah. and that's that, that keeps me more engaged more interested more positive positive. and at the end of the day it did go faster like you were just saying yeah the day went by and and everyone feels like wow we really we got we really changed that song but we feel really good and tomorrow's gonna be great or you know yeah. Or we'll come back in a week and mix or whatever we're doing and that, that's that's been way better that's i'm I'm you know if, if I feel any sort of like even at the at the email booking stage if I feel like that project sounds crazy I bow out you know yeah if it doesn't make sense to me oh we're gonna overdub drums later i'm like nope not touching it <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah I'm not touching that that uh, yeah. uh, that's it called a demo <laughs> yeah you <know>? exactly yeah <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah I'm not I'm not interested, and you know I stay away from things that sound um, they sound like if they sound like they might drag on forever.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: generally stay away because I I just don't have the mental capacity to be like every three weeks drop it in on a project for a day I can't right I'm, you know and I don't work I stopped working weekends during the pandemic I completely just said you know what my other staff can work they, we can fill weekends yeah. easy tons yeah. of bands want to work weekends mm-hmm. my other staff can do that. I'm just going to tell my clients Monday through Friday, 10 to eight. That's all you get. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: That's yeah. Well, that's delegate. That's delegating. You know, that's, yeah. that's a good position to be in. You that's know, called, no, it's called boundaries. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Set said boundaries. Uh, I, I just want to say a couple of things. I mean, I produced a bunch absolutely. of records. I love doing it. I did it as a drummer. I do it coming yeah. as a drummer. And I, I think that makes me a really good producer for a lot of reasons, you know, because of many of the things that you were saying about understanding space about about you know I I have a very good understanding just sort of instinct about arrangements you know and 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 you can make a record sound bigger and bigger and bigger largely through subtracting things (laughs) you know and sometimes bands don't get that uh and 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 I love that and Yeah, that feeling on stage, you're always trying to fill the space up for some reason. You know, we're all doing it.
1: We're like, you know, I used to play bass chords and I'll make a bunch of racket, fuzz pedals, echoes, all these things on my bass, you know, just to kind of round up, fill out the sound. And some of it was for creative effect, but other times it was just like, let's make as much noise on the stage as we can. And when you get in the studio, you know, those kind of things, creating, just trying to fill the space can work on certain things, you know. But even some of the best punk records, you'll go back and listen to them and go, those guitars aren't, really aren't that loud. No, you know? Yeah. You know, actually, I'm focusing on the rhythm and the singer, you know, and the leads or something. So, you know, you need to keep those things in perspective. And, and I think for us coming as rhythm section players, especially, you know, we were always like watching other people screw it up. In front of us so <laughs> you're trying to think <laughs> yeah. you know oh why are they always playing that guitar part why don't they just rest a moment there and let the thing let the rhythm section come out for a second yeah. or, but in recordings like you absolutely like you said it, a sense of space uh, slowing a song down mm-hmm. it can massively make something sound better
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know i just god who was i talking oh i, was, I was, yesterday uh, victor krumenacher came by to, to visit and have coffee from
0: camper van beethoven and oh yeah Monks of Doom and a bunch of bands uh, I saw Monks of Doom play once it was a very oh. special special night for me <laughs> I, we opened for him a few times it was so good oh know? that's awesome
1: and uh, so Victor came he moved to town in the middle of the pandemic so we, we finally got to hang out and um, we would played with Camper at a, back in the day too and um, you know one of the things he said was as a bass player he said he started playing on uh, sessions in LA and he's like honestly people that that really full time I played soul and R and B and stuff, he'd play with players like that and they'd be like, slow it down. Slow the producers mm-hmm. would be like, slow the song down and everything's mm-hmm. gonna have
0: more space. And you're yeah. like,
1: oh my God, that's such a good it's just a good way to always think, you
0: know. Yeah. And you know this as well as anyone. You're you're a bass player, you've been in you've yeah. been in bands that m- most bands when they're playing live sp- play fast as shit they, they yeah. you know they just play the song super fast and then they get in the studio and they wanted you know that's just sort of yeah. their experience and uh you know getting them to settle it's, in a little bit it's either too fast or too long
1: or too loud or too too yeah. busy you yeah. know i mean like you know you know that thing like you'll be tracking a song or, or rehearsing a song and and all of a sudden, you know, you're You probably have this instinct too. It's like, why the fuck am I playing sixteenth note hi hat parts? All of a sudden, yeah. it's like, let's just let's just let's halftime this and this and you know each part of your you know each limb you start half timing, yeah, and then halftime again, or and then yeah. just just open that back up because it's just a wash of of something or it's just too, the the busier the drum part is to a point, the harder it is to keep in time. But then when you slow it way down, it's hard to keep in time too. Yeah. But you know, there's a thing where it's just like we always sound off. Like a really busy rhythm guitar. Chicka, 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 mm-hmm. Always sounds a little off unless someone's just an expert the, yeah. and the rhythm section under them is that perfect. Yeah. You know, so you, you start eliminating these things that are gonna be really hard to play and all of a sudden it sounds better too. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean it really ultimately for me personally, if I'm producing a record for a band, my goal Is to elevate them, you know, to help them make a bet, a great record, but also to help them play at a level that maybe they didn't even think was possible. You know, know, um,
1: I used to feel that feeling we'd we'd go in and and track a new album and then the next show we played, we were way better (laughs) because we, we'd really focused. I think the rehearsals we focused and we recorded them and we talked about everything. We'd map them out on the wall, but, uh, the studio would just be like, "Well, why isn't there a backing vocal here?" You know, and things like that. You would start right. really f- formalizing it. You know.
0: Yeah. Well, the studio can exper- experience can absolutely highlight things that you've been doing live, mistakes mm-hmm. you've been making live, and then you know you get <laughs> yeah, to fix yeah. them. Um yeah. I, I wanted to just say real quick. I know we're we're getting to yeah. probably to the end of time here, and I know you have a mix ready to go to work on, and uh, <laughs> yeah. But I do well, want to I, I just can talk a little longer because we do have to talk about tape ops. Yes, abs one hundred percent. So yes, let's talk about tape Op. Um, so you, wh- when did you say you started it? What year was 90, that? Nineteen ninety six. So it was a year before okay. the
1: studio started, actually, before the okay. The, 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 so the external studio, not the house studio, because that had started before that.
0: Yeah. So so you know, you mentioned parallel tracks before. Yeah. Uh, you've been you've been juggling some things for quite a yeah. long time. Yeah. Um, so how does that process work for you as you know i mean you I, i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about the early days as you were kind yeah, of yeah. figuring it out yeah. the idea of starting a magazine and finding guests finding guests i'm a podcast host so i use the word <laughs> guests finding people to interview for for yeah, your yeah. magazine we're all that of kind guests. of stuff yeah yeah um you know the the initially, it was certainly
1: like I mentioned earlier, Greg Freeman had recorded our first two albums in Vomit Lunch, so he was an easy choice. I'd learned a lot from him already. Um, there was an artist uh, called Fred cornog who had a band called East River Pipe that was just a home recording project, and I thought that'd be really cool because you know, you never see an interview with someone like that back then. Uh, how'd you make this record? You know, mm-hmm. like it was on he was on Merge Records, Super Chunks label, and, mm-hmm. and uh. You know, so those were the first kind of key linchpins of the first issue, and then it was like, you know, oh, uh, someone told me this band called the Apples in Stereo was good, so like they came through town, we sat down, did an interview, and uh, it just started, you know, kind of like growing out of you know self-recording artists, uh, people with smaller studios, certainly initially, and uh, you know, I really, I really saw it. As a learning thing for myself, certainly for for others as well. Of course, I wouldn't just write it and look at my look at it myself, <laughs> and uh, and but as um, you know, as a real boost towards telling people to be creative and like and stuff. Like I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. but also as as certainly an alternative to the existing media uh, about about music recording that existed. And when I say that, I. I, you know, I used to be a little snottier about these things and you know but you know there's other magazines that cover music recording and some of them do it really well I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Sound on Sound I think that's a really great magazine and there's others that just they seem like either they're completely geared towards hobbyists, which Sound on Sound is a little too much for my taste uh, the hobbyist that aren't even really active getting records out there that much. Yeah. Which to me is a really it's a gray area that I sort of you know, kind of makes me a little irritated like this isn't to me this has never been a hobby. Yeah. Um it's certainly being in a band and not making a living and having to work at a restaurant it did not feel like a hobby. Like if you mm-hmm. said which one are you going to quit, I'd be like well the restaurant, that's easy. You know, and for right. a while I did, I yeah. was collecting cans and getting my five cents, and, you know, I mean, it, it, that, that was more important. And, uh, you know, when someone if someone wants to set up a scenario and, and make records at home and do that, um, that's fine. That And I don't mind that, you know, but I'm far more interested in the, the musician that's actually getting those records to the public. And and getting maybe getting out and playing or not like Fred Cornog Easter River Pipe never played a gig, but he was getting his records distributed through, you know, indie labels and getting reviews and getting stuff like that airplay. So you know, I really saw it as like you know, kind of speaking to the active musicians and and speaking to creativity and and all these things and these other magazines, I mean. You'd look at the cover of Mix back then, and I, I hate picking on Mix because it looks like something that's just dying right now. But there'd be a picture of a gigantic Neve or SSL on every cover mm-hmm. in, a, in a pristine oak floored room. Mm-hmm. And it looked like no one had ever, you know, set a PBR on a table, you know. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I'd look at that and I go, Whoa who cares you know like i'm yeah. never gonna make a record in a room like that and other people do stuff and you know film scores get done on them and whatever else happens that's fine but it it did not speak to creativity to me it just spoke to like business and things like that
0: yeah very 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 polished shimmering yeah. ads you know yeah. magazines so, were like big ads you know
1: yeah and it yeah and it was like you know yeah you know oh uh, you know, so, you know, Warner Brothers is building a new film scoring stage. We're going to write about that. I'm like, that's not what I'm going to write about, you know? So yeah. I came up with a really well-defined in and, and sort, sort of slightly flexible, uh, parameters of what I wanted to cover. No, no, like a uh, new release, you know, you know, new gear releases coming up section or anything. Mm-hmm. There's just, there's gear reviews in the back. Um, no, uh, state of the industry kind of talk generally, mm-hmm. you know, you know, no post-production, no film, uh, mixing, no, uh, making ads, no, you know, making podcasts, audio books, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. none of that, you know, it's just gotta be music, you know, recording music doesn't have to be music that's released necessarily, but, but generally it is. And it doesn't, it can be music recorded for like film soundtracks or broad broadcast use or something. But, um, you know, kind of just came up with parameters that kept me interested in it. And I feel that that's going to work with other people. Yeah. And so that was kind of the way I looked at it from the get go. And it's pretty much stayed the same, Yeah, you know, to some yeah. degree or another. You
0: yeah. Know, I mean, the scope
1: I, has gotten wider
0: for sure. Yeah. I, I would say the the word I would use, I mean, there are many words, adjectives I would use to describe Tape Out Magazine, but I would say authentic is a word that comes to mind. Yeah. It feels like it feels like you know how people refer to uh, some player as a musician's musician mm-hmm. you know <laughs> yeah. uh i i, I in sure. some ways i feel like it's a it's a musician's magazine's musician's magazine if you know what i mean you know it has yeah. it has a yeah. feel to it that that just feels like if you you know people who do and love making music yeah. they will love this magazine you know right.
1: like, like victor and i were talking about that yesterday i'm like you know, this This all evolved out of the conversations we'd have in the 80s with, you know, you'd be on tour and you'd meet up with your friends and play a gig and you'd go, where are you doing your next record? Who are you working with? You know, what do you think about doing it yourself or doing it here or doing it there? Who's a good producer? What was that producer like? You know, you would have those conversations as, as working musicians. And I'm sure you did, you know? Of course, <laughs> you yeah. Know? And if you had a bad experience with a producer, you would tell the bands, like, hey, don't work with... Uh, Joe Blow, because, man, he was just the worst. He was on the phone the whole time and doing yeah. coke in the bathroom.
0: And, you know, Yeah, so we had good. one of those. Yeah. We had they, one of those. With, they exist. <laughs> oh, they do. And this one had uh, literally terrifying Doberman pinchers in the band lounge. <laughs> and he, he wouldn't let them, he wouldn't move them so we could hang out in the band lounge. And we oh were, we were for afraid for our lives. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
1: I've I've heard stories of people that would order like, you know, three cases of French wine as soon as they booked the date, you know, and, and just be like, I'm, you know, just drinking from, you know, you you, you don't know. And so, you know, I thought early the the magazine would be more like cautionary tales of people like that, but that shit weeds itself out, you know, Mm -hmm. and the budgets have shifted during this whole time too and people don't have like you know three hundred thousand dollars to spend making a record anymore and Mm -hmm. you know there there are just a lot of parameters that because of what everyone had done before that that made me look at it and go well who who's not getting interviewed Mm -hmm. uh and and what do i what do i see wrong with that the 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 way it's been all presented before you know so you know when you say authentic or something it certainly is because um excuse me who else who's owned and helmed a music recording magazine work you know has is even near the level of what i'm doing in the professional world yeah you know I'm, yeah. i was already when i started it i was even making records for like matador and stuff like that in my basement so mm-hmm. you know i i don't i'm not trying to blow my own horn or say you know talk myself up because i don't even need to anymore i believe but you know I really do this.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, and other
1: people at magazines are many times they're musicians or something, certainly, but you know, they're, they're kind of slanted way far more towards being a journalist. uh,
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, an active record producer, you know,
0: Yeah. And I think uh, one of the things I think, you know, and and so you've had the opportunity to interview. How many people do you think you could spitball that you've had the the opportunity to interview? Oh, God. Hundreds. I mean, would it be in the hundreds, uh, the upper hundreds?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. That's, you know, there's 145 issues coming up, Um, you know.
0: Yeah. Hundreds, hundreds. probably. Yeah. Um, And so one of the things yet, (laughs) yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah. One of the, I mean, you're a great interviewer. You, I I think you ask great questions. (laughs) I think, I think that one of the things that I really love about the way that you interview people for your magazine is that you do talk about the gear a little bit. You ask the kinds of questions like, Oh, so what are you using there? What you know, what, how did you get that sound on this um, or that recording? And, but it, it doesn't feel like, it doesn't feel like product placement, You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like, and they're telling you what creatively they gain from it. And, 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 you know, and I, I just, I love that. It it has informed me on many occasions in terms of if I'm looking to acquire a piece of equipment that I feel that my studio needs, that mags, your magazine has helped me in making some of those decisions. And I'm, I'm grateful to you for that. I appreciate that.
1: And you'll see, it's not what i used to see in other magazines would be like you know al schmidt's recommended microphones and i'm like yeah that's that's a pretty good list that's great but yeah it's not what he used every single time and he might have used a whole that might be what he's using now and he didn't use it on some classic album of his you were listening to mm-hmm. you know so those you know when you i mean if you sit down and you interview someone and you go so what do you like on a kick drum and what do you use on the top snare what do you use on the bottom snare and then what mic pre-use are you using it's like, is that the most boring interview you ever read or what? I mean, it's a fucking <laughs> Excel spreadsheet, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's so dumb. And I really, you know, I've, if you look, if you read every interview I've done from the beginning of the magazine to now, you would see me learning mm-hmm. and, and asking better questions, hopefully, and uh, and 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 asking about, I remember interviewing Joe Ciccarelli earlier on and saying, what do you what do you do for upright bass you know mm-hmm. or something i remember interviewing mm-hmm. bob weston and asking him about electric bass like what do you put in front of him yeah hey, how are you because his sounds were really good yeah you know and and most of the time there wasn't really a concrete answer and i'm not blaming mm-hmm. those two guys yeah. specifically or anybody because the scenario changes every fucking time you sit yeah. down and make a record you know everyone everything sounds different everyone plays different the songs are different none of that stuff always works generally yeah. and yeah. so you 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 know that makes asking those questions really stupid you know yeah. to me to to, to be yeah. like really didactic about you know what do you put on the top of a leslie cabinet you know it's like 57s who cares you know it, it's like these don't there's a lot of things that don't they just you're not going to get an answer you can use because it's a, a constantly shifting target and yeah. and so i I ask certain things, I find myself asking far more questions about uh, appro- lately approaching arrangements you mm-hmm. know, like we were talking about earlier, yeah. uh, like I just interviewed Lindsey Buckingham and I was like, you know, I wanted to talk about his home studios and guitar arrangements, like because mm-hmm. I think he's a really great electric guitar arranger, yeah. acoustic too, obviously, but, but his, his electric guitar arrangements to me Can be very lots of very simple little parts that all come together and make something so perfect, you know. Yes, and that's that's interesting to talk about. So, how did you start developing that skill, you know, and those Mm -hmm. things? That's that's more interesting. And I just, you know, I think uh, I think it's it's really fun doing these interviews, and and it's I keep pushing the envelope too to to make it even more like a. When I was young, there was a magazine called Musician. Mm-hmm. Which was very high quality, I think. You know, like think pieces by Robert Fripp, and and the interviews were like kind of more longer format. And I kind of think sometimes I think my goal is to almost turn Tape Op into not a recording magazine, mm. <laughs> if that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah, no, you know, I understand because it's just like all these stories. Someone's philosophy can tell you far more about how to make a record than than what mics they put on the kick drum. Mm-hmm. you know like you know interviewing someone like t-bone Burnett, you get a sense of of how he is in a room and then you go oh okay i see what he's bringing to the table mm-hmm. you know and trying to get that on you know, elusive quality on in print is the goal and getting people to understand that like there's so so much more you know to to keep your eye on like like pacing people or keeping people comfortable or all these little things and and being a you know being a music fan and listener because believe me when when i sit in the studio with someone and i keep mentioning artists and they go huh what huh, huh, i'm like no wonder they're an inferior musician you know they haven't listened to enough stuff you know yeah. you know like what the fuck you know <laughs> I mean, and it's not obscure things. It's things in the genre that they're playing, you know, and I'm like, so I'm 58 and I've heard more current music than you have and you're playing in these kind of bands like that's mm-hmm. stupid, you know, to yeah. me, you yeah. should at least have a good idea of what everyone's doing. And, and I, you know, so I, I think just having all those things far more important. And, and so when you sit down to interview someone, it's like, it's like, okay, let's, let's get, let's find out what are the, the things behind it behind the screen that are really making this person tick and what, what is it they bring to the table and, and trying to uncover that to some degree,
0: you know? Yeah. I keep shaking my head. Yeah. I keep shaking my head because I agree with you so much. It's ridiculous. And I I honestly, like if I, if I, I couldn't have, uh, if someone asked me if to describe the intent of my podcast, I couldn't have described it better than the way that you described tape op in the sense that like, I want to learn people listening to my show hear me learn every day or every week. And also like, I do talk about gear. Sometimes it comes up in conversation, but I agree. Like what I want to know is this human being that is a creative person. And you really start to understand their approach to life and how it, how it informs their creativity and all these things. I just think it's, you know, to me that is much more interesting than spending two hours talking about what and, guitar strings they yeah. use or right. I mean, that's God.
1: You read some of the, you know, the instrument, you know, bass player, keyboard, whatever magazines, especially like in the eighties or something. And it was all, how can I sound really shrill and awful? You know, and that's all he'd find out. But, um, you know, you read those things and it's like, well, what kind of gauge you put on the highs? You know, Oh God, it's so boring. And, and it really, you know, any good musician is, is, if you gave david gilmore any guitar hanging on the wall in here he'd make something Mm. amazing come out of it you know it doesn't matter and you know there's certain times it's kind of cool like how did you get that sound you know or something and you can figure out some things but you know i'm to me it's like i mean i hope my goal is is to always have a little bit of hate mail coming in honestly (laughs) and and not necessarily massive hate but just just people going You know, like the other day, I got an email and the guy goes, "I really wish there was." Your interviews are cool and all, but I wish there was information about how to use pieces of equipment to get great sounds. And I'm like, "Good, good, glad." Don't read it. Fuck off. (laughs) You know, I just don't. I'm not that a how-to manual of recording could either be the smallest book in the world or or an encyclopedia series that never ends. And so, if you don't if you think there's answers out there and you think that there's these little things that you're going to, you, you just need to read these certain things and that's going to make you such a better musician all, or recordist all around, um, you're obviously delusional, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's either like the tiniest book because it's the philosophy is like, I'm learning every day. I'm asking questions. I'm, I'm, I'm always listening. I'm buying new music. I'm, I'm in this for life. Or, you know, it's a million little things that you choose from that you learned. Like I talked about the early learning years. Yeah. That you just build up the skill sets where you go, well, I know why that's shitty sounding because that's a crappy snare, it's tune drawing, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever, all yeah. these things, you know. Yeah. So, you, you know, to think that, the, like, oh gosh, you know, they interviewed Brian, you know, but they didn't ask like, about his favorite mic pre, you know, you're a fucking moron if that's how you what you took away. So please stop reading the magazine, you know, (laughs) you know, go look at tutorials by, you know, on YouTube that are free and see what you get there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, Well, Larry, thank you. I'm honored. I'm absolutely honored. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, man. It's fun to have a place to vent, you know, but. Oh, this is, yeah, this has been wonderful. I could keep going. I just don't want to keep you from your, I don't want to keep you from your mix. I get is to mix mixes these songs. plural? Yeah, yeah. Well, There's i w-
1: about eight songs to turn around today. By the end, I've worked on a bunch yesterday, and now that I'm working on the weirder ones, so right? It's kind of fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool. Um. Well, a couple things, yeah. listeners. Go, go online. Go to Tape Op, Subscribe to the magazine. Get a physical copy in the mail. It's Please. amazing. Can't recommend the magazine strongly enough. If you're a musician and you want Larry to mix your music. Where do they go? Larry-crane.com or our jackpotrecording.com are both. There you go. Um, uh, Studio music website. Fantastic. And I I wanted to say this. This is is the absolute truth from the bottom of my heart. Uh, It's going to sound weird that I even think this sometimes, but sometimes I think enough, just enough of myself to think this. There are two people that I would like to be interviewed by. (laughs) one of them is you (laughs) it's been a dream of mine to end up at tape op someday and the other one is terry gross from fresh air oh right wouldn't that be amazing it would be awesome yeah yeah. but uh so it's a it is a true honor for me to have the opportunity to interview you today and talk really just have a conversation with you more than more than a a formal interview but (laughs) i i I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today thank you man yeah it's been great getting to know you and uh All right. Take care. You too, man. Thank you. Uh, bye. All right. Bye. This episode was produced and edited by yours truly. Big thank you to Larry Crane, who an awesome guest. I was really honored to have him on the show. A little bit famous theme music by Jay Darius. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you next week.